Welcome to the spit. I'm your host Swaz. We're back once again. Just like I never left. Two weeks in a row, y'all. Um, sound quality still on point. Still using the new techno gear. Uh, I have a special guest this week. I call him Shaq. <laughs> I'll let him introduce himself, though. I'm Paul. Oh, that's your real name. That's my real name. <laughs> they can't pronounce my name at work, so... So, how are you? How's your weekend? I'm doing great. Uh, unfortunately, the weather's not cooperating. <laughs> Had many plans for many months, and I was staying at home for the three days, doing work, doing laundry. That's my exciting weekend. That's what you have to look forward to at age 60. <laughs> <laughs> so, the reason I brought Shaq here to interview him is because Shaq is a former addict. Right. Many year addict. Many notches. Yes. How many years? Over twenty years. Over twenty years. Okay. Over twenty years. So a to Z. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you remember what your first drug was? I remember the first day, the first moment, the first day. What, what was the first drug? We were upstate in Boy Scout camp. <laughs> what year was this? Um, approximately 1974. Oh, it's the Woodstock era. Yes. Oh, I grew up in that era. I was, I was a little young for it, but I was aware of it. Let's put it that way. Okay. And my friends had just bought some black tar hashish. Explain <laughs> to people what hashish is, because I'm pretty sure my listeners don't know. Really? But I watch a lot of like drug programs, so I I kind of know what hashish is. But explain it to it's some just people the, who don't know. It's the oil of the marijuana. Oh, okay. But it, 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 it comes to you hardened. Yes? yes, it comes to you in a cake form. <coughs> like a little brownie almost. Exactly like a brownie. And the darker it is, as we were taught, the more potent it is. Okay. And this looked like black tar. This looked like asphalt. So how do you, how do you ingest that? You, well, you crumble off a piece, uh-huh. and you use a pipe, and you smoke it. Simple as that. Just like marijuana. So like a, uh, what do they call the, the weed pipes? Like a bowl. So a bowl, yes, yes, like a bowl. yes, yes. So you put down uh, aluminum foil to catch the oil, so you can uh, you can reheat it and re-smoke the uh, remainder in a bowl. So are you smoking the smoke? Yes. Oh, yes. see, so it's like base. I, I guess so. Yes, yes. It's like base, marijuana so, base. Okay, so you would put the hashish on the on a piece of aluminum foil and right. burn the bottom, right? Which gives smoke. Right. And then you would take another pipe and smoke the smoke. No, no. Or you just inhale, inhale it from the uh, pipe. The smoke, you'd put holes into the aluminum foil uh-huh. on the sides, and the smoke would travel through the pipe, and you'd smoke it like, like a regular bowl. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But that's, that was the initial form of marijuana in the Middle East, and they sold it as hashish. In Europe, it was all hashish. Very, very few people actually smoked Marijuana as in a leaf form. Mm-hmm. It was, I presume, it was easy to travel with and easy well, yeah. to bring. Now I see it like when I watched like Border Patrol and these type of programs. Okay. You still see them sending it overseas. Right. Like you'll see them sending it through Australia and all of these places, mm-hmm. and they'll hide it in like lamps and teddy bears and all types of stuff. And it's a cake form, so you can form it into anything you want, and you only need a small piece. Uh, a couple of match heads worth, and that's it. That's enough for two, three people. And yeah. I'm telling you, that stuff was amazing. 
And this is at Boys Camp. Boys Scout Camp. Sixteen? Sixteen's on the Boy Scouts. I thought the Boy Scouts was for little kids. Well, no, well, that's the Cub Scouts. But right, that's Boy the Scouts Cub Scouts. Went up to like twelve. Eighteen. Eighteen. See, I'm I, I'm not going to say my nationality, but we had scouting organization, mm-hmm. which is a little bit militarized because we were under the. Uh, we were subjugated by the Russians, and so, uh, but we had the Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, up to age 11 and a half, and then you graduated to scouting until 18. Okay. And then from 18 to 27, you're a senior scout, and then you can continue being a scout until, until the day you died. It was up to you, but yes, it was a, a commitment throughout your life if you wanted it. Really? And that's I, where I, I loved it. I, that's maybe, I don't, maybe it's not like that in the United States. Well, again, it's different. It's it's based on William Baden Powell, who was the Englishman who created. I forgot Scotty. to tell you, Shaq has a wealth of knowledge about everything <laughs> on the planet. He's one of the smartest dudes I know because he knows something. I'm not smart. No, no, no. I remember something. things. You no, know, that's a difference. You know a little bit about everything, and that's dangerous <laughs> for the white man. <laughs> also, the colored people is dangerous for us. I don't even know if they still use colored people. I think black people would be pissed off that I said colored people. Mm. But whatever. I, that, stop that. That, <laughs> see, that. that gets me angry. What? It's a terminology. As long as the person is... As long as the person using it is using it in a respectful manner. Yes. Yeah, I get it. Was, I guess. Yeah. So, you're like 16, and this right. is the first time you've ever experienced we were, Right. We were upstate. It's uh, We have a large scouting area, about 400 acres, between Albany and the Massachusetts border. And we were leaving. It was a three-day event, a Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. It's called the Preparation St. George's Memorial Weekend. I'm giving things away here in preparation for this summer camping experience, summer camp experience. And uh, right before the bus, uh, we uh, boarded the bus. About four or five of us, uh, men and women, uh, girls and boys, went to the woods and smoked a large bowl of hashish. And the three-hour ride to New York was one of the most uh, interesting rides uh, I ever had. What was the first high like? Do you remember? I remember being giddy and enjoying it. And uh, being unable to uh, control myself. And I was hooked from that first second I felt that feeling, unfortunately. I have the addictive personality. See, I feel like I have an addictive personality too. Yes. But only the three things. Sneakers, (laughs) money, and women, that's it. Yeah, well, you're lucky. I have, I, I, uh, women, money, and then it was drugs. But again, it was that era late 60s, early 70s, where drugs were prevalent everywhere. I mean, everywhere. It was just everything was drug-based. I mean, I keep thinking about my uh, my childhood and my teenage years and trying to think whether or not I was different, but the people who didn't use drugs were different. Because they, of, were, they were the, I want to say, outcasts, because everybody... Right, right. Everybody... Dabbled in getting right. in some sort of it was peer pressure to its uh, full description and definition. How much was this hashish when you? What do you mean how much? You, when you bought it, I didn't buy it. Well, you it didn't buy it. No, well my my friends had it. Uh, so after that, how often did you? Was that I don't remember. Was that the last time you did hashish? No, no. That, I mean, uh, well, I graduated to a marijuana and hashish, and then. Continue to pills and... Oh, we'll get there. We'll get All there. Right. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. 
So after that first time with hashish, yes, did you continue to do it often? Was it something that you just did on the weekends, or was it like after school every day? Well, I I was I was attending Catholic high school, and I transferred out to a public high school, and that's when things went south because everybody was was medicated there in, in, in high school at that time. In 75, 76, everybody was, was medicated going to school. And every person had marijuana, and I just fell into that whole club of using drugs with all my friends in high school. And it was almost a daily basis. So how much, was, how, how much marijuana would you buy? A nickel. A nickel, was it still $5 back then? It was $5, and you got 8 to 10 joints out of it. And it was wow. good marijuana. It is, was that is a huge fucking man. bag to get. Well, joints don't take that much, but still, it's a lot bigger than the bags that were nickels in my era. Okay. So, I'm pretty, the bag, like, a, no, a, you, you a nickel bag was like, uh, yeah, I know y'all can't see how wide I'm holding my fingers. It was... Enough for how many joints? Put it that way. Well, people in my era didn't really smoke joints. They'd smoke <coughs> blunts. Okay. So they a blunt right. is when you empty out a cigar. And right. People like to lick it. That shit was disgusting. Y'all see somebody lick a blunt? No. That shit is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Y'all might as well kiss I don't after. Think, yeah, <laughs> I, they, I don't think I would have started using if I had to kiss a blunt. <laughs> mm, but yeah, a nickel other. bag, you would put that in one blunt. Really? Yes. A dime, the best dime I ever bought was 14 joints. Yeah. And it was, I don't know what it's called today, but it, it wasn't any special marijuana. It, was, it had a golden hue to it, and uh, it's really pungent smell, and it was really, really good for the, for, the, for the amount of money you paid for it and the amount that you received in trade. It, was, yeah, it wasn't like I hear it today. You buy yeah. you buy a $5 bag, you're lucky if you get one marijuana cigarette. Yeah, you're out getting one. No, no, no. It wasn't like that. And now people make, you get a, a 20 sack. I don't know if they even call it a 20 sack anymore. I'm so out of the loop when it comes to doing drugs. But a dub is what they call it. So a dub is okay. a 20. Right. And you, some people are putting that in one blunt. <laughs> or two at the max. Is that because they want to make the blunt so large, or is it just because that's that how much there is? Both. Okay. So that's a waste, isn't it? I, when you're trying to get high, you probably smoke it. Well, some people smoke that by themselves, but right. you trying to you trying to get really high, and the weed is, I guess, a lot more potent now with all right. the genetics and stuff that goes right. into it. I would presume so also, yes. What they're doing, right. In the laboratory and in a controlled environment, yeah, yes. You can mix strains. I don't know how you right. do that. I'm going to interview somebody in the weed business. That, that was my <laughs> next search. <laughs> Give so. me a call because I'm, looking. <laughs> I'm, I'm already on my way to get the medical marijuana card. Oh, you, you know you can get CBD oils. So you don't get Legally. the psychedelic. Yeah. In New York State? Yes. Where I go to, you know, I vape. Where I go to vape, they sell CBD oil. Because I'm taking it for the pain the in pain my knees. In joints, yeah. Really? Yeah. I appreciate that information. So the way I vape, you see me vape before yeah. we sit in the car. You vape, you do it the same way. And you can smoke the CBD oil. So it takes away the psychedelic right. the THC in right. it. It takes away the, you know, the, right. the crazy feeling you would get. 
And this one is more for pain and calmness. We'll speak about this after the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I think we're having lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now, yes. like you said, we're back in the Early 74, yeah. 75 era. And a nickel bag would get you four, to, you said four joints, four to five joints? No, no, no. Minimum, minimum five joints. Five minimum to nine. Five, five to nine. That is crazy. If it was five joints, you'd be upset and you'd tell the dealer, this is not right. He'd give you more? Well, next time he'd give you a bigger bag, yes. Or you'd lose your business. Yes. In those days, in those days, yes. It was, it was still, it was largely uh, underground, not like it is today. And you could speak to your dealer and, and you, know, you, you were going to him on a regular, daily, regular basis. basis and you made a point of telling him what the problem was. Yeah. But I mean, they do that now. You have the same... We deal. You can do that now. Um, so, well, I can't say was it as good as it is now, but no, I don't know. Yes, yeah. Was it really? Did you get really tricky oh, with? It was amazing. Yeah. So, uh, depending on the strain, but uh, I had a friend who was a big dealer in Boston, and he uh, paid his way through Harvard College selling, <laughs> and he brought in things that were amazing, amazing stuff. You know, I'm. Uh, I don't know where he purchased Harvard's his work. in Boston, yes? Yes, yes. Oh, see, you was getting your weed straight from George Jung, man. Blow. <laughs> see, he was getting the, he was getting the good stuff that from the stuff man Boston amazing. George. Amazing. Half a joint between three, four people you couldn't stand. Have you seen Blow before with Would Johnny Depp? No, no, no. Okay, well, he, his character is George Jung, who is okay. actually... Boston George, and he had made it, he went to, he had figured out how to get marijuana into the States in okay. large quantities. Right. First, he was going through uh, flight attendants. He, you know, was great time, so he was giving, he was paying flight attendants because their bags didn't get checked. Okay. But they were only allowed one bag, so they'd bring back, let's say, 10 pounds each. Okay. But then, he had such a clientele, and he needed more. He bought a, or he stole a small plane, <laughs> flew down to flew down to Columbia, and they gave him, you know, huge quantities of marijuana. He would fly it back, land it in the desert, and then right. drive it back up to Boston. Once they figured out that he had the, the knowledge to do all of this, he makes a connection in jail with Carlos later, <laughs> and then. He introduces him to Pablo Escobar. Okay. Which is how they started to get cocaine into L.A. and the East Coast. And I actually knew a pilot who did that. And that one, met point, one guy. they said he was responsible for America. He was responsible for like 60 to 75 percent of the drug of the cocaine that was in America. Is he still out? Is he still alive? Uh, he just got out. He's alive. He just got out of jail not too long ago. I'm surprised they didn't take him out for his knowledge. Well, yeah, I, he never read it. He never... Yeah, still. Yeah. If you don't read it... Don't take it, no, chances, either, uh, I guess. But he had already been locked up before and didn't tell. Okay. So, I guess there was no thought of, you know, him telling on anybody. And then, of course, uh, Pablo ended up being dead. And That's what I mean, later. exactly. So, but, um, yeah. So, you <laughs> actually were getting weed from a dude who put himself in Harvard. <laughs> Hmm, I'm trying to keep the information as, <laughs> but yes, <coughs> paid his way, paid his Harvard. way through car uh, through Harvard by selling marijuana. So, 
And we were getting we were getting product that was amazing, amazing. So you were getting super high. Right. How often? Every day? Probably every day. Yes. Did this affect your schooling? Of course. You dropped out? No, no, I never dropped out. I fortunately had parents that that did care, and I did get my uh, high school degree, and then I went and I got my two-year associate's degree in engineering. So I did. I did. Somebody. I don't know how I did it. I mean, exactly. I don't know how I did it. I still don't know, but I did. Yes. And still, years later, I still reflect on those days, and I don't know how I ever graduated, but I did. Did your parents know you smoked? Yes, yes. They found half a pound of marijuana in the garage. Half a pound <laughs> of marijuana. Do you remember how much a half a pound was? Then? No, no. It was, uh, well, it was, was no, I don't know. I was probably foolish and young and foolish, and uh, I had a place in the garage I thought was secret, but obviously it wasn't. But no, it was, um, don't even know how much it was. But under the Rockefeller laws, I probably would have spent my life in jail. But as being a young kid, you don't care about those things. What did they say when they found us? Oh, obviously, it was very upset. It was... We grew up on the Lower East Side, and everybody knew about drugs. It was just that. It was a daily... House Kitchen? No, no, no. Um... Uh, uh, Avenue uh, First and uh, Avenue A and Avenue B uh, between First and Tenth Street, so it's part of the Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. Now they call it the East Village. Yeah. And the drugs were again prevalent. Everybody was doing drugs. I had a friend in seventh grade in, in Catholic school who OD'd in the bathroom. I what? Still, on heroin. I still remember him being carried out by the priest to the ambulance. Heroin in seventh grade—that's crazy. It was everywhere. We were, as children, oh, 10 years old, I remember walking to school over all the hippies lying in the street sleeping on St. Mark's Place. It was just everywhere we turned. We grew up in the Lower East Side. was drugs. Everybody was using it. It was peer pressure, and everybody had it. So after your parents found it, the punishment, Not, lecture? Of course. Because now, I, I, when I was in high school, yes. there were kids who smoked with their parents. Yes. Well, no, no. They, it was a different time. Again, uh, it, the world was changing in the 60s. And, uh, I mean, just wearing long hair was a sign of... Uh, rebellion. Rebellion. And, uh, I mean, I still remember the first person that was caught smoking marijuana in our community, our cultural group. Mm-hmm. And he was ostracized, excommunicated... And to a degree where nobody even acknowledges existence. And uh, that was the type of world we were living in. That was in the late 60s, 69. That was the first person that I knew that was caught with marijuana. And he paid for it dearly. Um, sex on marijuana? Sex? Yeah. Of course. Was it different than when you weren't high? Well... Uh, I mean, yeah, everything was different when you were high. It was more of an enjoyable experience, yes. <laughs> I'm not going any further with that question. <laughs> Did you get her high before, or was it just you? Like, well, she again, was a good girl, circ- but she liked the bad boy, so. No, in the circles, I'd rather not go that far into my, uh, I'd rather not give more than I can away, but in our circle of friends, we were all from the same cultural group, from mm-hmm. the same community, from the same background. And so we did everything 
as a group, men and women, boys and girls, Boy Scouts, traveling. Uh, and so if you were part of that group, you did everything the group did. So the girls were just as much into it as we were. That first time I smoked the hashish, there were two women present, two girls present. Three boys and two women. So it was, it was, it was both groups involved continuously. Um, with the smoking, how long, how long did you, how long was that period? Because hashish obviously was one period. No, 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 it was, it was a mix, because depending on what was available. I mean, there were some times that there was no marijuana available. So I still remember the summer of 1975, there was no marijuana available at all. At all. So y'all just smoked hashish. We smoked hashish. Or we, or you'd smoke what was being sold, which was not that good of a product. So after weed, what was your next drug? Pills, different types of pills, speed, downers, A to Z, enjoying the uh, the high effects of different types of pills combined with marijuana. So it was just a graduation to a different. Uh, using mescaline, using mar- LSD. Uh, it's a it's a plant it's a it's a it's a derivative or chemical of a plant I think a peyote plant mescaline and it's it, it's it's made into a, a psychedelic drug so psychedelia so that was in that the pills in psychedelia was the next step. <laughs> what what drew you to pills like how did you? Get it was just to peer pills? pressure. It was just everybody. One person bumps into it. Why? Right. And then, right. And then like, all of a sudden, everybody's doing I got it. This dope high from this. Right. You guys want to try high school. It? I mean, again, friendships. You know, um, uh, boredom. Uh, being in school, being bored, you, you go get high, make it through the day. Did you play sports in high school? Very little. Very little. I did a little bit of running. That was in the Boy Scouts, but that's about it. We played football, pick up football games in, in Flushing Meadows Park. Every weekend, but that's about as far. No organized sports, no. And through all of this, you kept good grades or? Enough to graduate. <laughs> that's, a, that's like a D minus. Yeah. <laughs> I told my daughter the same thing. I don't care what your grades are as long as you get a piece of paper. I want to see a piece of paper on the wall. Did she give it to you? Or yeah, she gave it to me. She got the degree. Yeah. But it was all D's, C's, and D's. <laughs> But what does it matter as long as you have to be... I, it don't matter oh, No, I'm just me, saying, I was never asked in my whole professional life what kind of, what, what grades you received in college or high school, so... Well, they normally ask you that in high school, like the college, before you go to college, what kind of grades you get. That's how you got, that's how you get accepted yeah. to some schools. But, again, okay, I mean, being a middle, middle, middle class, I mean, uh, there was basically one way out, which was city university, city college. And that's where, where that's where she went. And she she got she received a degree and she's happy and she's moving on, but I think as far as I remember, it was all C's and D's. Um, so now what 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 years are these that you're taking pills? Uh, seventy five through seventy nine. For like five years, it never stopped. It just continued. <coughs> so it was just on to the <coughs> next drug. On to the next drug. On to the next experience. And you were married once. Yeah, that was much, much later. Much, much later. Oh, okay. That was in 96 I, I was married. 96? 96, 96. The summer of 96 I was married, yes. 
I was like 36 years old, I think. Oh, so you had kids before you got married? No, I never had kids. There was a stepdaughter, basically. Oh, okay. It was her daughter who decided to live with me rather than with her mom. And I took the responsibility and raised her. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I have to, um, you know, I, I, I believe that if you take a responsibility for being a dog or a turtle, you have to maintain that responsibility. And I took responsibility for a human being. And to me, that was important to make sure that she grew up and had her and had the foundation to uh, to do what you wanted in life. And I'm very proud of that. So now it's 79, everybody's taking pills. Right. Same way you get your marijuana, you just bump into the dealer and he has pills for sale? Or yes, um, it yes. It started, it started with uh, that whole disco quaalude uh, era started. So everybody was turning to, to pills at that time. And that was, it was everywhere also. And he had the Black Beauties, which are speed, and he had the Quaaludes. Every, I personally didn't like the Quaaludes, but everybody was doing Quaaludes in my circle of friends. And obviously, you'd see, and people getting arrested on the news, it was all about Quaaludes. That seemed to be the uh, drug of choice during that era. What's the highlight on Quaaludes? You ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? No. With, uh, I know who you're speaking about, yes. There's a famous scene where he takes these old Quaaludes because they they had gotten rid of Quaaludes. Right. So he found right. a dude who had these Quaaludes that he had stored away for like 20 years, <laughs> and he takes one. Nothing happens. Okay. So he's like, oh, these must be done. So he starts popping them. Mm -hmm. Now he's on like four, and then all of a sudden, all of them kick in at once, <laughs> and he's a drooling, crawling. Couldn't make it out of the, the, in the movie, he's in like a country club. He had to crawl down the steps to get to his car, and he crashed his car all the way home. Well, that's the thing about Quaaludes. It was a sloppy high, and I didn't enjoy that. And I moved on from that. What's, what was the next drug after? It was heroin. Oof. Yeah, that was, a, that was a graduation ceremony. That was, yeah. Now, heroin, you can shoot, snort. Smoke. Yes. How did you? I only and I only uh, snorted. I didn't. I, I never shot. Yeah. Oh, I'm scared of needles. It's not that. Is I knew that if I took the needle, I'd probably kill myself. People were dying left and right. Left and right. Going to funerals every couple of months. Can you describe that era with people who were on heroin? Like I only know from all of the movies and stories I've heard. So you have like um Nikki Barnes who okay. sold heroin and right. uh what's my man from You're talking about American gangster. Yeah. yeah. What's that? what's his uh, Frank Lucas. Frank Lucas. You know, so he was getting his heroin through the military. Right. I've seen the movie. Back, right. Yeah, shipping it back. Well that's see that's that's part of that whole scenario. It was like the middle seventies. All Vietnam was winding down. And a lot of the vets were coming home, and a lot of the vets were addicts. Yeah, they got high over there right. and killed the time once right. the war was over. And then all of a sudden, you have this influx of all these veterans looking for a high. And I rem it, it, you can't explain this. It was It's a different world. I mean, you'd go down Rivington Street, or Avenue B and 3rd Street. Said it looked like a zombie. It was, it was a bazaar. It was like being in Turkey or some Middle Eastern country. Literally. Five, let's say five different products being sold on the corner, on the four corners, 
and lines of hundreds of people just lining up and buying the buying the heroin. It, it was an amazing sight. The police would come around. Everybody would scatter and make it look like they're just waiting there. What are what, what a thousand people doing on the corner? <laughs> <laughs> and this wasn't one corner. This was a bunch of corners, a number of corners, where you'd have everybody from the whole tri-state area, you'd see in the different license plates, come to cop their drugs on the Lower East Side. It was hundreds of people online. You, I cannot describe this. People don't believe this. How much was... How much was heroin back then? It was, it was just like it is today, $10 for a bag. If you were a steady customer and you got to know the manager, he'd reduce the price to $80 for, for 10 bags, for a bundle. So how much would you get on a regular basis? And you said you snorted it, right? Yeah, and, and at first I was only doing it on weekends, as a weekend high. I worked as a bartender and uh, in the Lower East Side, and uh, it was part of just part of the high. I didn't like drinking that much ever. It wasn't my thing to to get drunk and sloppy drunk. Being on dope made you feel like Superman. And uh, I started on weekends and occasionally during the week, and I progressed to a daily basis. And did the daily basis using heroin change your? Everyday life? Of like course. It ruined my life. Did you still go to work? Did you yes, work I worked work? every day of my life. I worked every day of my life. So you're life. functioning. I was a functioning addict, yes. Yes. And uh, it sounds ridiculous now, but I was proud of that back then. That I was I a think, functioning addict. I think most addicts, that is their their claim. Like, well, okay. It's not a problem because right. I get up and I go to work every day. All my bills is paid. Right. Like... You're delusional. You're basically yeah. delusional because you're you're lying to yourself that you're fine. Where if you don't have that ten dollar bag, you're going nuts. You're spending the whole day doing nothing but chasing a ten dollar bag from Bushwick to Spanish Harlem to Lower East Side, just chasing the bag. It was nuts. It's not. When I think back about it, it was nuts. It was. But I wish I had, like most addicts, had a three year period and crashed and burned. And I didn't. Unfortunately, I was one of these people who kept using it on a regular basis. Most of the people that survived their addictions and their serious addictions used them for three to five years, got seriously involved, used the needle, found themselves in a spot where they couldn't move on anymore, and stopped using. It's amazing that you would get high. Like, how much would you buy at a time? Was it always just... You know what? All I need is a $10 bag. No, no, no. You'd buy, you'd buy 30 to $50 worth to keep you going for a couple of days. So you wouldn't have to run back down and go cop more. So you're trying to, trying to keep some at home or on you so that you wouldn't have to think about chasing down the bag. Well, see, normally if you give an addict, let's say, oh, you know, $30 give you through the day. Right. At, that's for a small amount of time. <clears throat> and then after that, it's like, Oh, if they get thirty dollars, they're gonna shoot thirty dollars worth or smoke or snort thirty dollars worth, and then that ups it. So now, right <coughs> after I use my thirty, I'm still spending the rest of the day <coughs> searching. Right. I w see that was my I was I was I had the ability to hold on to a bag or two for the next day for the morning and keep moving on, and maybe that was the problem that that caused me to continue using drugs for twenty years. 
But we all had scams. It was just the addictive lifestyle is one big scam. I mean, you, if you wanted to straighten out, you always had a bottle of methadone in the corner just in case you couldn't cop or you didn't feel like copying, you felt sick. What is, <coughs> I hear about methadone. Yes. I don't exactly The worst know what, possible thing to get involved is, in. What is, what is methadone? It's a, a chemical uh, um, uh, substitute for heroin. That's all it is. Now, you said you could keep a bottle of that in yeah, the corner. Uh, like right. You could buy it at a store. Or you had no, to no, no. You'd buy it from another. You either, you, either you joined the clinic or you purchased it off another addict who was going to the clinic. How big are these bottles? Are well, it depends, on the, it depends on the dosage and how bad the addict was. Are we talking like a, not like a 20-ounce bottle? like a No, no, a small bottle, but it like was. A vial? That no, size? no. It was the size of an aspirin bottle. Okay. And it, uh, the, uh, they had, it was in pill form. And each pill was 40 milligrams, and some people used 150 milligrams. Yes, and some people used 15 milligrams or 5 milligrams. And the whole process was to start high and lower the dosage on, uh, on a monthly basis until you stopped using. But the problem is, is that the whole methadone industry, I don't know how to put this, is based on keeping the patient addicted now to the methadone. So that they can make money off of it and continue using you as a means of making that money through the insurance. That was the, probably the worst thing I ever did in my life was to join a methadone clinic, sign up. The worst thing I did in my life. It saved me in the end due to the uh, manager of the, uh, of the clinic realizing I did want to stop finally and sending me to a doctor where I did receive some professional help. But their whole idea is to keep the, is to keep the patient on methadone. And it's obvious, and everybody knows it. Okay, so like you said, you would use 30, you buy 30. Let's say, yes, a day. A day. What would, what, what are the reactions to when you, let's say you use it all, had no more money? What are the, what are the, the bottom? Oh, there's always money. I can always figure out where to get money. <laughs> <laughs> what, like steal or? Well, steal, beg, or borrow. That's how everybody gets around. Again, I was working. I had a good job. Then I had my own company. I had good money. I always had money. That was rarely was it a question of money. Then I would go borrow the money from somebody. But money wasn't a, really wasn't the deciding factor. It was the ability to go on the street and buy. That was the. That so you was never really had to go through withdrawals because you. No, that was. I many, mean, yes. I, I mean, of course you went through withdrawals when you were finally getting sober. Right. But. In your using days, you never really had to go through a draw because you always worked, you always had money, right. or you could always get money. Right. So you never went through that sick period like most addicts would, where it's like, I didn't get anything today, they're sweating, they're right. storming up and down the street, trying to find anybody and anything to do to to get money, to get right. that fixed. And they're burning all their bridges, and eventually they find themselves on the street and they realize they better have to change their lifestyle. And, you know, I sometimes wish that it had happened to me. Rather than extending it over a 20-year period, maybe I wish I would have crashed and burned within a reasonable amount of time so I could have gone on with my life and become who I am today earlier. rather than earlier, a lot earlier. You know, I, didn't, I didn't stop until I was 49. And I wish I had stopped a, a few years earlier. But it is what it is. It's been 11 years of sobriety. And I'm doing fine. I've got my life together, taking care of all the bills, and I live peacefully. And uh, right now, I have no regrets, no complaints. That's amazing. 
I don't. Yeah, I, people say that all the time, but um, I don't know. Sometimes I, I believe that it's, it was meant to be that way. I just I can't explain why I have that feeling, uh, but there's some reason, some reasoning of, uh, of of me having to have had to use the drugs for so long to move on to a different chapter in my life. I can't explain it any better than that. But there was some reason and purpose for it. Did you have any like significant losses during the time you were using? Like, you you said you worked and you had yes. your own business, so you never had to lose like a house or no. a place to live or no. anything like that. No, I always had a place to live. Again, I I found a niche where I was uh, obtaining documents for the construction engineering industry in New York City, and the the uh, the fees were very high. So for minimal amount of work. I would get a large amount of money in return for the, uh, for, the, for the permits I was issued. And that allowed me to spend time on the street buying the product, thinking about the product, living that lifestyle, because there was a minimum amount of effort to get, the, to get the permits and provide for my clients in return for the large amounts of money I was making. It was being a dealer and, a, and, other, and just a legal dealer getting documents that nobody wanted to get that I would go and find and get for the construction industry. And I would charge high fees for that. So the women you dealt with yes. during this time, were they addicts as well? Did they not use? You don't have to give any names. No, of course not. But uh, it was, uh, yes. I mean, again, uh, in that circle, yes, most of the women used. We were all. Well, I mean, were yes. you, you're still in this same circle from yes, Boy Scouts from, from the childhood. Yeah, really. From um, my, <laughs> I've mentioned this to you. My personal best friend, who I've known for 56 and a half years, just died. That, that those friendships have continued throughout our lives. It was a very cloistered, closed world of of this community from Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, where I still remember and still have my phone numbers to all the friends that I would that I have had since childhood. And I, it's, it, yeah, that, that's very uncommon in America. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's basically a real village within a city where everybody knew everybody else's business, everybody knew each other, everybody knew each other's parents, what they did, who it was, who where, and it was a very close, small community. And I still have those friends. Have you ever dealt with prostitutes in this? No, never. No. no. Never. Not once. Being sober, or I don't know why you're asking that question, but no, I don't. I don't have any. You're a forty year old dog. That's why, because I know you. I don't have any phone numbers for you. No, no, no. I don't need phone numbers for a prostitute, Shaq. No, I've never used a prostitute, and only I, I find that degrading. Even even going to um, the question a topless or prostitute? bar. No, that's yes, a topless bar. I think I've spent five minutes of my life once. My uh, brother was getting married, and we went to Topless Bar for a bachelor party, and I literally just walked out. And just, I just find it degrading. I'm, I was, I always, there, there are a few things in my life that I was not a fan of right. until I tried it. I was never a really big beer fan. Right. Beer is in the, out, the, the beverage. And then we went to spring break. Beer is dope. <laughs> I can drink beer. <laughs> I always used to think, Strip clubs were terrible. I might as well watch porn on the TV and throw my money at the TV. I could at least pick that money up. 
But then I went to a strip club. Okay. And strip clubs are fun. You don't even have to go in there and blow large amounts of money. It's not about it's the money, fun. though. You don't think the atmosphere is degrading? Nah, no. No? I don't know. Listen, I just found a group of men standing doing, there. She's doing, she's doing a job. Yes. And that job helps pay for her kids, pay for her to go to school. She just chose a different way to I'm not being judgmental no, about not, the woman. Not, not, not judgmental about the women. I'm just saying it's just an atmosphere that she might enjoy. She, yeah. might, she might also enjoy it. I do, I'm getting shivers. I can't see standing there <laughs> with, with, with 30 old, dirty old men. Who 30 gonna, dirty old men. Who are going to find any corner in a room to go masturbate and try and get their rocks off and... and uh, I'd rather be watching porn at home in my own private room <laughs> <laughs> with my own tools, to, you know. <laughs> I don't know why we went to the subject from... Uh, from well, the, no, because with a lot of drug use and people being addicts, they do things sexually to get money. Yes, yes. So okay, I see what you mean. Yes, the woman used her body the to make the money, so yes. You might, like a prostitute, she might be an addict, but... She might want a date with you because she knows you have a job. You're always consistently right. having money. And if you're from the same community, right. she knows, like you said, she knows your business. So then she can say, you know what? I know Shaq has it. So I'm trying Paul to remember. I don't know. You know, I don't remember any one of, of my personal friends that were women that sold their bodies. Not one. I just see. There was always, you know, I mean. Real functioning addicts. It's so hard to understand that. I, it's amazing. I, I just found out about a personal friend I've known all my life. She's still using. And she, this is, but, but functioning. What, but functioning. And she's still using heroin? Yeah, she's still using heroin. She's still using methadone. She's still using pills, Oxycontin. But it's amazing. She's at age 60, she's still using. Did it change her looks? Change. Oh, yes. I think she's. As far as I know, right now she's HIV positive. Oh. Yes. Well, she was using the needle, mm. and uh, yes, it all changed our looks. It changed uh, my body is, is done with. It. You know, the, uh, all the joints hurt, all the bones are brittle. Everything. But, all, uh, but uh, is that for, uh, is that from using, or is that just from age? Uh, it's both. Yes. Because I think some people just have bad genetics. And yes. Yes. It's a family thing. Like my dad has a bad back, so right. I'm guessing. If I don't take care of my body now, when I get to be his age, I'll probably have some of the same ailments. So, are your ailments now at 60, are they more from genetics or is it more from the usage of drugs for so long? Well, what I know is that, what I think I know is that heroin does make the bones much more brittle. And much less strong. I know the teeth. Had, I've had problems with the teeth because of that. And and um, I'll give you an example. I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. I just feel that it's a combination of both. I think that if I didn't use all those years, I would have felt a little bit better. Because at, at 60, I don't think I should be uh, having this type of uh, continuous pain in my joints where uh, other people I know who worked basically the same and lived the same lifestyle I have, don't have that. Possibly genetics, but I also think that it would have done less harm to my body. Now, the fact that I know you, we've had some of these conversations a lot, and you've told me that you've died 
Yes. Before. Yes. How many times? Once. Well, twice in the same night. T- tell me. <laughs> this this is was this was this an overdose? It was a. Uh, I used the drugs in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and there was something in the drug that restricted my breathing. I have slight asthma. Uh, slight allergy to uh, to animals, depending on the type of animal, and the pi- depending on the coat the animal has, and uh, the combination of the drugs and the asthma, and I guess some dog or cat uh, caused my uh, uh, breathing to stop, and I I had problems with the breathing, and what I call the worm in the back of my head told me that I better call the ambulance because I'm not going to make it any more than this. Oh, you were able to call the ambulance? Yes. Oh. And walking down the stoop of my house, 10 minutes later, that's the first time I collapsed and died. And they revived me with the uh, defib, with the uh, paddles on the street in front of my home. And then the second time was in the hospital? Was in the hospital. Um, I woke up three weeks later in the emergency, in the ICU, with uh, ripped my gown off and found uh, 18 paddle marks from the uh, defib machine. Which means that they hit me nine times with the paddles and brought me back. And put me on a ventilator, incubated me, intubated me, and put me on a ventilator. And if you can't remember, describe this death feeling, if you can. I, I, I tell people, I mean, being reflective on the moment, it was the best two minutes of my life. Huh? Dying was the best experience and best two minutes of my life. How is that? What I experienced after death was a uh, a, a realization that uh, life continues no matter what, that death is not an ending, it's just a beginning, and that you lose your consciousness of your body and you become nothing but energy, and you see the light, the light was not God, or the light was just the center of the universe where all the energy goes to, and you begin to be... You come to a point where you realize and understand what the universe is about. And it's a moment of peace and bliss that I've never had before or after that two minutes of being dead. Did that, if you can remember, Yes. did that state last for a long time? No, no, it was very, it was very quick. I mean, I'm... I, I mean, because... When you're when you're unconscious, you don't know two minutes from ten minutes. No, 10 minutes but you know what's going on. I think it depends on the consciousness because I remember hearing the nurses, hearing uh, hearing the chaos around me. That I do remember, and then I do remember. Well, I started the, I started the uh, the trip to the other side, and that was very quick. Uh, I mean, it felt like an eternity, but I realized later it was very quick. And I woke up three weeks later. Out yeah, of the see, summer. that's what I meant, like because. You said it felt like it was a long period of time. There was no sense of time at all. Time didn't matter. I mean, I remember my energy being balled up into a ball of energy and leaving my body and traveling through the dark void where I started losing, even though I didn't have the body, I still, had the, uh, I still felt that I had a body and realizing that I was in a different state of, of existence. And that's when all this understanding and peace and bliss entered my thoughts. I still had the illusion, I presume, of me being a personal individual. But I was entering the black void, and there was a light at the other end of the tunnel, which was what I call going back to the zero. Because that 
ball of energy was where I was going to end up and move on to another state of existence. But in, in, during that trip, obviously they revived me and I came back and I never made it to the light. But there was no sense of time at all. There was a sense of realization that life continues, that energy cannot be destroyed. You're moving to a different state. One without any problems, any, and, and again, under, under understanding of what our existence in life and that it's made of peace and love and joy is really, rather than what we feel and live here on, on this planet and on Earth. It was, it's, I'm babbling. Well, no, it's very interesting because most it's people... It's very hard to explain. Very yeah. hard to explain. I mean, yeah, it's, it, was an, it was an experience that you have, you have to experience. Oh, so I got to die and yes, you come yes. back? Yes. <laughs> what the fuck is that supposed to work? I'm supposed to kill myself just enough. Just enough. <laughs> to come back. But that feeling of peace, bliss, joy, happiness has never been replicated. I've never had that before, either after or before. It's just the understanding of your place in the universe. And that there is no good, no bad, there is no, it's just no happiness, no sadness, no hell, no heaven. You're just in this form of existence at peace with, every, with everything in the universe. And then unfortunately I woke up in the ICU room three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, during this time, you were already married or... No, at this, this time I already I separate. I was already separated. separated. Yes, I was separated for about a year and a half. How old was your stepdaughter at this time? She was born in '87, and this happened. Uh, she was 20 years old. Because I remember, yes, I was, she was she was 19, 20 years old. '87, '97, 2000, uh, 2005. I'm sorry, she was 18 years old. It happened now. Columbus Day, 2005. And you know how, you know, this, is, this is interesting. To me it is, but it's amazing how life turns. The reason I was saved and brought back was that the only piece of ID I had on my body was my methadone clinic ID card. And they called the clinic up. And it was Columbus Day, so the, there was nobody there. Right. It's closed. They reached the manager, uh, Joyce Brown, of the clinic, who I'm grateful to. That was what I was going to say is who you said you got cool with the manager. And right, who tried to help me. Right. She knew you wanted right. to get clean, so they were able to get in contact with, with her. her. And she drove down from Westchester on, on Columbus Day to the clinic from her home and faxed over all of my medical documentation to the, to, to the hospital. And that's how I was saved. Because of this woman, because of the methadone clinic. So that to me is a, that to me is an amazing story. That so it's a good thing you joined. Yeah, you know, in that respect, hated, yes, yes, yes. I still I still think of that. Yeah. I still think of that woman every day. I went back. I uh, I uh, made my peace and I thanked her and I went back twice to thank her just to make sure that she understood how grateful and appreciative I was. But she said she's the one who saved me. Went out of her way because she understood that I really wanted to change. So after this near-death experience, was that the end of? No, I was still death. stupid and arrogant. <laughs> That's a typical. Yeah. Got right back That's right. <laughs> uh, yes, that's a typical male stupidity and arrogance and machismo. 
But um, so you got clean in like 2007. 2007. But I was I realized it was time to end, and I was already slowing down to maybe once a week, twice a month, and then finally in 2007 in June, I uh, I made the decision to stop. How were you able to wean yourself off? Uh, Joyce Brown. I should I don't know if I should use the names, but she reached out to a doctor in Astoria who was uh, using an experimental drug called Suboxone which is a nerve blocker for heroin. And uh, I made the call, and uh, I, I went to the doctor's office and um, found some money and got paid him, and uh, the Suboxone destroys the urge. Mm. And you're supposed to stay on it for a long period of time until the doctor feels that you've, you've, you've changed both mentally and physically where you're ready to move on. But, uh, yeah, I used it for about two weeks to get over the hump, the cold turkey, and uh, I stopped. I had enough of all drugs. I just made a decision against medical advice. Two weeks later, I just stopped everything. I never went back. Never looked back. And that what he, that's what he was concerned about, me relapsing. Yeah. But, but it was enough. Time I stopped doing, the, stop time doing the, the drugs so quickly. Right. Right. It was time to move on. Uh, I stopped in June. By the first week of July, I already had a, a job. I already lined up a job. Uh, which I loved. Were you not working at this time? No, I was still had my own business. Oh. Uh, and I gave all, I just stopped, called all my clients up, decided I'm cutting the cord, started looking for interviews, and uh, that was the height of the, uh, right before the the, uh, the economic bubble burst, and they were uh, looking for people. My listeners don't know what the, uh, what was the word you said? Economic uh, b bubble burst in 2009. Oh, I thought she used another word. Oh, no. That's when we had the, the Great Recession. But right before that, the construction industry was was uh, was was uh, the construction industry was so busy that they were looking for anybody who had any type of experience or background in construction. And I was hired as a construction assistant site super, and uh, that's what saved me was going to work every day. I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning to get to work by 5.30 to do the OSHA scaffold inspection. And that's what got my mind off drugs and moved me on to where I am today. Any lasting effects from the, the, the heroin use? Not physically. The, no. Well, but your heart. You said you got the... Oh, but that's not from that. That's, oh. that's just, that's genetic. That's genetic. Oh. Uh, my father's side of the family are all short and squat and overweight. <laughs> Cholesterol. <laughs> Chole that's right. Cholesterol, <laughs> all those problems. Well, my mother's side of the family is all tall and thin. And I, unfortunately, got my father's uh, genes. And that's just, yeah, I, it's... Uh, which, which in, in itself is another podcast because I, I think I told you that I, uh, I have the severe blockage. Yeah, and your heart grew a whole another uh, valve. Two, no, grew two ancillary, two uh, arteries that provide 98% of the blood into the heart. Which, again, I, I, I've been lucky in my life. I, I believe in luck, and that, uh, and that I've been lucky not to have that situation cause me harm. So I'm, I'm still walking around and obviously uh, getting things done and very grateful and appreciative that I can do that. But no, no, no lasting, no lasting physical uh, problems. It was more, it was more social where I lost. I mean, I made up a saying. I don't know. I mean, first I lost most of my friends because they started the drug use, 
and then I lost the remainder of my friends because I stopped using drugs. So that 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 uh, having a little bit of of, uh, of an issue with loneliness because of my drug use that that's probably been the biggest difficulty right now. A lot of people don't trust you anymore. A lot of people have trust issues, and they're right because you've been an addict. That's all they've well, known about you. I don't know if I would have trust issues with somebody who's been working and they're their whole time on drugs and was always pretty responsible because they had a life. They didn't have to steal. All right. So I would think the trustworthiness comes when either you're borrowing money and you're not returning it, or you're stealing from me and I can't trust you. Well, but if you've always had your own money, your You've always done things responsible. You always had a, a, a roof over your head. Right. You've always taken care of your responsibilities. Even through that time, you were still responsible enough to to, to your stepdaughter. Yes. Why would? Because if, if you came to me and was like, "Well, I need your help," it's the, okay, precon well, it's mean, the preconceived notion of an addict. That's what it is. Right, but then you also have to look at the addict and be like, "Well, he's never done anything mm, wrong." I think society is a little more. Uh, like, there's this, this difference. If I saw an addict who was dirty physically, mm -hmm. and they're like, nah, fam, I can really, I don't want to hear it. Because right. you don't even look the part. I saw you. No, the facade. Okay, right. yes. Uh, I saw you yes. suggesting, you know, khakis, shoes, and a t-shirt. And you're like, yeah, well, no, I can't hang out. I got to go to work tomorrow morning. Right. Oh, you, you have work? Yeah, I run my own company. Oh, I have a house. Yes, and I have a stepdaughter, and I have to, you know, my ex-wife is getting on my nerves. But yes, so I would look at it a little different. So you bring maybe that's just me. No, you're bringing back a lot of things where uh, a lot of energy was wasted and used in keeping the facade up. A lot of energy. It was people not knowing what I was doing. Very few people outside the circle, my friends and family, knew what I was doing. And it was it was basically a, a whole lifestyle of trying to fool everybody and everyone into thinking that I was a normal person. But the people who knew didn't have trust issues. It's just that pre preconceived notion of an addict. You don't can't trust an addict. And I paid dearly for that. And it took me many years to uh, rebuild my relationships with my family. I did that because they've seen that I did move on, that I didn't relapse, and um, back to square one. Now, I know you're a dirty old man. Because I <laughs> no, know I'm not. You, and I hear the things you say to me on a daily basis while you work together. <laughs> yeah, but that's a different world. I want to invite you to the breakfast table. Okay. You don't listen to my show. The breakfast table is what we call ass eating. <laughs> Where are you going with this, man? Are you really going to make me a sex yeah, wife like I thought? I thought what? No, you're not stupid. <laughs> At least not mine. Okay. <laughs> Do you ask? Would you the, the, the ladies you deal with? No, I mean I've had rim jobs, but no, I've never. Ah, <laughs> you got the rusty trombone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the night that John Lennon died. <laughs> I remember getting the rim job and enjoying it tremendously. And hearing that John Lennon had just been shot and died, I popped my head up off the bed and I said, screw this, this that's not important. This is important. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that, the night John Lennon died, I had my rim job. That was great, man. Stoned out of my mind. That's the only one? Or you that's the only one. That was the only girl who was willing to do it. She was an infomaniac. She was nuts. She was great, but she was nuts, man. 
Her thing was to may have sex in any possible place. Just check it off the list. Elevator, like, back of the seat, elevator, roof, stairwell, hallway, you name it. But uh, she was a good person, but she was an <laughs> she implementing. Was, she was so nice. <laughs> Anywhere well, well, why are you going to the rim job from, from oh, the drug Oh, because year? normally, I, normally my sex is, my show, my sex, my show is based on, like, relationships and, okay. and uh, relationships and sexual activity. Mm. I think that's a really good way to get to know people because okay. if you can get them to be a little vulnerable, right. they're open, they're honest about it. Some people. Some. I was going to say, that must be difficult to get people to open up about that. No, nah, I think I do a really pretty okay. good job of, of that. All right. But that's totally what my show is about. But I really wanted to diversify this episode <laughs> with you because I just I always thought that you're, we, like I said, we have conversations right. all the time. And I always yes. thought it was really interesting how you were able to live this life. And like I said, I always thought you I always think that you're really smart. You have no. I, I even if you remember facts about that's the thing. It's not being listen, smart; it's I having can, the knowledge. I can I can remember facts from the things that I'm interested in. Yes. So there's a lot of things that I don't remember facts about. You, I want to say, is like my uncle. My uncle, I like to call him a Renaissance man. Okay. Because he could teach me a little th- a little bit about everything. Right. If I wanted to talk about politics or whatever, right. my uncle could do that. If I wanted to talk about sports, he was always the one we talked about sports. Right. With. Or if I wanted to play sports, he was the one who taught me how to pitch and how to grip different grips on a baseball and a football and stuff like that. And he could teach me a little bit about drugs. <laughs> so, I always thought my uncle Manny, shout out to my uncle Wello, he always had a wealth of knowledge about a bunch of different things. Never had kids. Right. The bad thing is that he still lives with my grandmother and the last job he had was like 86. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, people who have a wealth of life experience and knowledge I always think are really cool. So when Thank we, you. When we talk, I always think that your stories are really intriguing and I just wanted to highlight that. Now, next next time we got to talk about when I was abducted by the aliens. Here we go with this shit. And then when I hitchhiked around America in '79. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he tried to tell me I should hitchhike around America. I don't got time for this driving. See, I was very lucky. My father, who I loved and uh, taught me the uh, taught me the love of reading, and that's what got me down the road. And with all of his knowledge, was reading, and he taught me the love of reading. And for for that, I'm internally grateful. Because without that, I would have been lost. Like, I have other people that I know who are lifetime drug addicts who are probably still using who right. want to interview. Their story is going to sound completely, not completely, but it's going to sound different from yours. Right. So but they're still using it's a whole different Oh, world. yeah, yes. I definitely think they're still using it. I saw him yesterday, and I definitely thought oh. he was high. I was on my way to the barbershop, and I was like, <laughs> he was like, oh, tell him. Oh, you are high as shit right now. I have no time for this. I'm late to my barbershop appointment, and I told him I was going to be there one minute ago. I got to go. Um, any words of wisdom before we get out of here? I try. I, let's be honest. Uh, words of wisdom. Just sing No, nah, be yourself. You be yourself. You don't that, have to that, run to the red light. No, you be yourself. You don't have to run on the red light. <laughs> I think uh, be yourself. I've changed. Uh, I try and be non-judgmental. I try and be fair, and I try and take each person as they are. 
and uh, they live a decent, quiet, peaceful life. That's that. That's my uh, advice to anybody. Don't live with, uh, don't live above your means. Live peacefully, and live a life that you're proud of. And I can really finally say that I am proud of my life at 60 years old. Shaq, like I said, I want to thank you. You're welcome. Should I do my shout-outs? I feel like doing a couple shout-outs. I think they'll make you laugh. Shout-out to all of the Spanish people, all of the Spanish dudes. Your parents don't love you because they, they didn't circumcise you. <laughs> You're walking around with that elephant skin. I mean, not elephant skin. What is it called? <laughs> uh, trunk? Well, not a trunk because <laughs> I've been drinking. Um... <laughs> You're walking around with that hoodie on instead of having that Darth Vader dick helmet. You know what I mean? Shout out to the girls who got the Willy way back hairline. They got the bow to the E to the. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, but like I said, Shaq, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks thank for having for me. Thank you for doing the podcast. Uh, with that being said, kick your head back twice on ice and keep cool to the next time. You have now been introduced to the spit. Peace.